I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Here is my handle, here is my spout. Next stop. <laughs> You're listening to Crypt Law with Nick and Kevin, where we talk about games, the law, and the law of games. Hi, everyone. Hopefully, the sound quality is a lot better today, since we've got a fancy new mic set up, and we've managed to hack uh, a bit of a sound studio in our offices. So It really looks like a Heath Robbins job, but it's it's awesome, and hopefully you can hear that it's awesome. Mm. Uh, so apologies to last week. It was a bit of a bad recording, and I know that our intro music by Gibbo blew a couple of people's eardrums because our speaking levels were really low so people were doing it full volume and then intro and outro music happened so hopefully that won't happen again uh, anyway <laughs> if, if it if it does happen again uh, um we yeah we're really really sorry and uh hope that you have a good time in hospital indeed uh, our, we limit our liability fully you listen to this podcast at your own risk uh stuff uh anyway um what are you drinking today, Kim? I am drinking a very peasantly glass of water because I've got a bit of a cough and I don't want to be coughing into this brand new microphone all the time. This sounds good. I'll... It's gluten-free water, so... <laughs> Damn hipster. Uh, yeah, Michaela didn't sleep last night, so I'm I'm on rocket fuel again. Uh, anything interesting happen work? Oh, last week was a tough week. Um, I can't actually even remember what happened at work because I just blocked it out. Um, but a lot of good things, I'm assuming. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'm, I'm going to sing the litigation song. Ah, okay. I'm not going to sing the litigation oh, song. Good, but yes, good. I'm busy dealing with the litigation matter, which is never pleasant. Uh, and in the news, we had some fairly interesting stuff. Yeah, uh, so... Something that I found that was very, very interesting was um, Faulty Towers... Uh, has a knockoff dining experience in Australia. And John Cleese has apparently only just found out about this. It's been running for a couple of years. It's called the Faulty Towers. It's spelled correctly, F-A-W. Oh, sorry, F-A-U. Um, the Faulty Towers dining experience. And uh, obviously trading on the whole how everything can go wrong in the actual Faulty Towers uh, TV series. And what's interesting about this is that we we don't really know how they can tell them to stop, really. Uh, John Cleese is very upset about this, people trading on something that he co-wrote, but he doesn't exactly own the copyright to it. BBC owns the copyright, so they would have to uh, say that there's a copyright claim. Um, another thing that could possibly happen is uh, that John Cleese accuses them of passing off. Uh, the problem being with that one that they have been running this for probably about five or six years now. I uh, stand on a correction on there. Um, which would mean that the claim is possibly prescribed. Because the prescription would normally only kick in from once you become aware that you have an action. So if he's only just aware of it, then surely I don't think prescription would. Yeah. So for the, the non-legal scholars in, 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 the, in the audience... Uh, prescription is a legal term to say when a matter prescribes, uh, and that means is that you can no longer act on it. So like in South Africa, for example, for most things, it's three years. So uh, I get into a car accident with you. You have three years to sue me for those damages. And after those three years, you can't sue me anymore. That said that the claim has prescribed. 
back on topic. No, the uh, I I I agree with that. Um, the source of this, though, were a couple of a couple of lawyers in Australia that I was reading up on, and they they seem to think that the, uh, the passing off claim wouldn't uh, wouldn't survive. I'm not sure if the prescription laws in Australia are the same as as we have here, but I'll check up on that and okay. I'll get back to everyone. Cool. Um, World of Warcraft uh, Blizzard is uh, oh, targeting babies. That is so cool. I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry Nick I, I'm I'm being a bit of a fanboy here but uh, one thing one thing that happened last week I don't actually know how I missed it because it happened way before then is that they is that World of Warcraft announced uh, a book series they partnering they partnering up with Scholastic and they're creating World of Warcraft Traveler a series aimed at children uh, just a storybook. Uh, exposing children to the tales of world of warcraft and um while it's aimed for kids i am most definitely going to be uh roped into that myself uh it's 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 wonderful it's glorious i am super excited sounds like a christmas present for my daughter um so what i found quite interesting is is that the university of california irving has started an esports scholarship for league of legends which is very exciting um, they've actually gone ahead and uh, got, well, I mean, Riot is supporting this effort by um, giving, sort of sponsoring a, a lab where the people can practice and play. And, uh, and um, the university has kind of come out saying that they would, uh, looking to expand it to other esports. So, you know, we could see sort of Smash or um, Call of Duty or even Dota, I suppose, all you know, you can go to university on an esports scholarship, which is pretty cool. Um, this is sort of links in with another bit of an exciting news out of the London Games uh, Week, which is a sort of a festival that's been held in London now to sort of promote the video game industry. Um, and it's that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, in partnership with some sort of key stakeholders, I suppose, has formed a new body called the IEGC or the International E-Games Committee which is a non-profit organization that's kind of loosely affiliated with the International Olympic Committee. What this means is that this is sort of the very first step for esports to be recognized as an Olympic sport which means that we could be having League of Legends matches as part of the Summer Olympic Games. Um, the first event is actually going to be held in parallel to the Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, uh, where Brazil, the United States, Great Britain, and Canada will be sending teams, um, and they're going to have gold, bronze medals. It's 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 quite exciting. It's very cool. Um, a legally perspective, what, what what's quite interesting about this is is that have you ever wondered what the difference between a game and a sport is? Yes, uh, I, I was actually quite surprised when you told me that um, that chess was an Olympic event as well. Yes, so I, I this is something that I had to do. I had to do research on, uh, in terms of the African Gambling Act, for example, you can't, uh, if you were to have a competition and you charged entry into it, it would be regulated by the Gambling Act unless the thing being played is a sport. So I had to dig deep into the annals to try and find, well, what actually is a sport? And what the difference between a game and a sport is a sport is recognized by the International Olympic Committee. And so chess, this was for a, for a chess platform who wanted to run chess competitions online. They 
sort of the answer was, well, they don't have to, they don't have to worry. They don't have to get a gambling license because it is an official sports tournament <laughs> because chess is recognized by the International Olympic Committee. Um, and so, I mean, I suppose they just put, it adds legitimacy to, uh, to esports, but it actually formally makes them a sport. Um, apparently what's happening is they're going to be meeting with the different publishers during April, so this month, uh, to figure out how they're going to do this because it does raise interesting questions is, is, is it, are we going to have separate events? So is there going to be the Dota event, the, uh, the LOL event, the Call of Duty event? Um, or are we going to see things like, well, only, you know, so for different genres, so first person shooters, well, only CSGO then is recognized, or in a MOBA is only League of Legends recognized. Is that the standard format? Um, which is going to play uh, into sort of publishers that's going to say, well, we own the Olympic sport. It's sort of quite novel is that I think it's the first time that a sport can be said to have the rules are owned by, and, and the intellectual property and the means of play is owned by some corporate body. So it's very exciting, very interesting, and something to look forward to. I wonder, um, I wonder which would be played in winter and which would be played in summer. <laughs> well, maybe maybe that's how they do it. They say, okay, well, uh, uh, you know, Dota gets the, the 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 winter sports, and League of Legends gets summer sports. I don't know. Maybe. First person shooters are, are summer sports because it's, you've got more people running around. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right, um, and then lastly. The sort of last bit that I want to pick up in news, which is related to the topic that we'll be speaking to about today, uh, is the fact that so Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition is about to relaunch. Or uh, is it no, no, I don't. I don't believe. Uh, I think it's no. That the the article really was was simply talking about um, how uh, Beamdog uh, produced it. Oh, okay, okay. So the so Baldur's Gate the Enhanced Edition. What was interesting is is that they had to reverse engineer it essentially because the the back so the the original source code source files uh, the models the textures was kept in some dude's basement and it got flooded yeah. and the backup disk got destroyed so essentially the the developers of Baldur's Gate Enhanced Edition had to reverse engineer everything and so there were there's a quote saying that they've basically the game is 95% new code um, which is fairly interesting, but this and it really and it really does speak to how committed um, the fans. Because I mean, you don't you don't relaunch uh, an enhanced edition unless you're a fan. But how how committed these guys were to um, to bringing Baldur's Gate back for for a new audience, uh, and it shows how awesome the game the game was originally. So thank you to Beamdog. Mm. Uh, which kind of leads us actually to the topic that we want to talk about today. Uh, so, something I say, I've started to see a couple of stories about this. There's some other stories which we'll be picking up now. But one of the things that is interesting about games, um, both as an entertainment, both as an entertainment mechanism or activity. And as an art form, and I, I don't, uh, I mean, are games art? It's a debate. Yes, they're art. I think it's settled. Um, you know, if movies are art, if, if literature is art, if, you know, yes, it's art. End of discussion. <laughs> People anyway. have regarded comic books as art, and then well, games comic are just totally art. Why not? Totally. Um, one of the things that's interesting about games as an art form um, and as a subject of academic study is that it is incredibly difficult to get access 
and to be able to play the classics. Um, and this is even as somebody who just as somebody who likes to play games. If you weren't born in the '80s, you didn't have a Sega Mega Drive or a Nintendo Entertainment System. Now today, it is incredibly difficult to legally play Super Mario Brothers three, for example, or the original Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, and this, you know, that was only twenty odd years ago, thirty years now, I suppose. Uh, and games has definitely solidified itself as part of sort of the the, the, the pop culture that it's mainstream. It's not going to go anywhere. But people who partake in the hobby who are avid gamers, and I, I don't like that term, but let's just use it, are going to have a really hard time going back and playing the originals. Um, and there's a couple of interesting points about games as a medium which makes the so so i mean the first one which is not really relevant to the podcast but it's it's worthwhile discussing is is that there are technological barriers right it's that unless you know in order to play the original super mario brothers in the way that it was intended to be played and i think that's also something interesting to think about is is that well it's one thing you can get an emulator and play it on your um you know play it play it on on your on your computer uh, legal issues aside, but it's not the same experience as playing it on a Super Nintendo Entertainment System with the original controller, for example, on a CRT TV. You know. Mm. Yeah, no. With the with the advances of technology, the the quick advances of technology, um, you you're looking at a complete impossibility to play the very first games or or the very second games, um, and it's it's just it's sad to see that history go, particularly because that art was created um, to be interactive, to be played. Mm. You can go back through art books and you can see how how Da Vinci and Rembrandt and all of them did their their art form without necessarily being in front of the picture because it's a simply it's simply a visual medium but because games are an interactive medium and the ability to play and interact with it has changed like you say you're not able to use the 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 controllers that you uh, that you originally had and it was originally intended to be played on you can't experience what those developers intended for you to experience and it's also i mean i think what's unique to games i mean this is sort of related is is that technology so rapidly advances is that we lose our back catalog so quickly i mean up until recently i mean even an xbox one the original xbox or the original ps1 i mean can you easily get access to and play those titles and i mean i know when sort of the the xbox one was launched it had no backwards compatibility and i I think microsoft has backtracked on that but that basically means as oh well you needed an xbox 360 even to play the entire 360 catalog of of libraries and this isn't just a this isn't just a console problem i mean even in pcs it's a i'm i'm primarily a pc gamer but you know i can't play my old dos games i can't play alley cat or um winter games or californian games because you know my, my computer is just the from a hardware perspective it's just the games just don't function um so you you need specialized software to to try and emulate them and so this raises the other interesting issue is that well if we wanted to archive and be able to to preserve these games uh, you typically would need to not only preserve the software itself and the mechanism and the means by which that was stored so the cartridges the original discs or everything else 
but you would also actually need to maintain the hardware. Um, you know, and so what, what's interesting now is that I see, like, for example, Atari has just re-released their original console with its back catalog of games. Uh, the Sega Mega Drive is also, you can go for a thousand rand, you can go get a Sega Mega Drive now uh, with like a thousand games on it officially being released, which is great. Um, but I, I, you know, and that's good. And it kind of shows that that sort of the publishers and the developers are, are, are taking steps. Uh, but the other issue that I think games have or sort of that are unique in trying to preserve us, uh, preserve games is that especially sort of post 2000 is because of piracy no other art medium really has digital rights management like mm. games do so i mean for example i've got a uh, uh settlers 5 i think um which i cannot play anymore because the servers that were required to do the security verification on it have closed down and so that you know ubisoft has chosen not to support it anymore i can't play that game anymore even if i wanted to it was a shit game but you know I just, you know, it, it, it's out of reach now. So that would then require, it's not just about getting the code necessarily and mm. emulating it. It's about getting the server-side software uh, up and running as well, which is a huge effort. And one of, the, one of the things that sticks out for me about this is that, as we've mentioned, the games industry develops really, really quickly. And so I doubt you'll find many other art forms out there in which you would regard something that is 20 years old as a classic. Mm. Um, you're not looking at 20-year-old paintings and going, oh, he's one of the greats. Yeah. Um, which means then that we are still stuck in a in both the legal and the just general thoughtful, gen- like moral realm of, well, this is still someone's property. This is still something to be exploited commercially. So now you've got a game that is 20 years old that you're wanting to look at because it's a classic and you're thinking, well, I should be able to do this freely. I should be able to do this publicly. It should be in a museum because it's a classic like Mm. all of the other artistic classics are. Mm. But it's still something that is owned by a publisher. It's still something that even if the publisher is dead, if he finds that people are looking it up because it's academic, he might want to... Uh, and by by saying a publisher is dead, I'm, I'm I'm talking about the company. You might find that the people behind that company would say, "Oh wait, no, the company might be dead, but but come on, we we still have some kind of rights to this, surely." So you get embroiled in a bit of a battle, um, and that's something that that's something that other art forms uh, I would imagine don't necessarily need to deal with, uh, and something that uh, certain certain groups like uh, good old games, are trying to to facilitate. Uh, they're trying to bring back those old games by appealing to the license holders and re-commercializing them. But the point here is, again, that they're producing it from a monetary perspective. So you've got games as arts that should be brought back just from the free public idea of of having them available to you, but the only way to actually bring them back, the only way to fight through these legal and uh, hurdles is to make it commercially viable to do so. Yeah. So I think there, uh, many people have sort of broached this topic and 
I think so we're I mean we, we've sort of laid the background of sort of the technical issues around it. so we're gonna focus on the legal issues is that because often the where there's a will there's a way hmm. uh, but in this case often the laws compound the issues in trying to solve those technical difficulties in terms of emulating software or uh, getting around uh, DRM rights by hacking or creating fake servers for which to ping to. Um, and so what we are going to look at today is we're going to look at some of the legal issues that make solving these technical problems more difficult. Um, and, you know, maybe we can come up with some ideas on how it could be solved or sort of what we think would need to happen in order to change that. Um, and there's... Ba- the, so, I mean, as I see it, there's essentially two legal problems. The one is vested in the laws of copyright. Um, and as you say, you've already mentioned those topics is that unlike the works of Shakespeare, for example, or unlike um, yeah, the, 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 the Da Vinci's works, none of those artworks are still have copyright attached to them. They're all in the public domain. So games, because they are so new, uh, they don't have that. I mean, they're still owned by somebody they are still copyright elements um and so so and this is sort of one of the other complexities of it a copyright law has obviously developed a lot in the last couple of years and so where copyright used to be valid for 50 years after the death of an author it's been extended to 70 it's been extended to 120 so it's not as though we're going to see these these copyrightable elements uh, or these copyrighted works enter into the public domain anytime soon I mean, even the original games aren't really in public domain yet. Um, so that's the first issue, is copyright, which we'll dig into first. But then the second issue is is that, well, and this is really more relevant, both from a hardware, but also from a from modern DRM perspective, is data security law, which prevents hacking and circumventing of security measures, which then becomes a criminal offense. Um, and that obviously now you say, for example, have people who will create um, a server, you know, they'll sort of reverse engineer it to allow people to circumvent the DRM on, on say, a product or, uh, you know, on a hard drive or on a, on a physical console. Maybe there was a security chip um, that required verification and people could sort of hack that, uh, you know, and they're not doing it. I mean, these games are no longer being played. They're no longer commercially available, but the copyright still holds, um, you know, but they've committed a crime still. Um, so that that's the sort of the the second issue, but let's start with copyright. There's there's actually another thing that I um, that I wanted to put in here in in terms of the the terms of service in the actual game. If the actual mm. game is running, yeah, still, then you could find even if even if for example you have done uh, the uh, if you've created the server side uh, thing that I can plug into and you have breached certain DRM laws um, because of that, you you will be in a legal bind yourself. But I might be in a legal bind because I'm actually connecting to mm. your server. Certain terms of service uh, in online games uh, that I know of uh, make it that you cannot use your uh, your local files to connect to anything that is not an official server, that is not official server-side files. Um, and if you do, that would be breaching of breaching your terms of service with the, the company. So you could find that we're both complicit. Mm. 
just on different uh, sides of the law. Yeah, well, let's start with the T's and C's actually, because that's that's probably it's a very good place to start. Um, because this is so if we've got a game that is a couple of years old, say two or three years old, um, copyright definitely hasn't expired. The hardware is probably still current, um, so you, you you know sort of you don't have those sort of issues. Uh, but it's not being supported for whatever reason, and that's just, that's a chalk it up to a DRM issue, right? So as you say, you need verification, there's no longer. So I'm just thinking Heroes of Might and Magic uh, 5, for example, this has this problem, is is that you would need to connect uh, to a server to be able to play it, but you can't because Ubisoft is taking down those servers. So what we, you know, so the, the traditional problems, sort of the longevity problems aren't an issue, but maybe the game is worthwhile study. Maybe it's worthwhile to say, okay, well, you know, from an academic perspective or um, for art's sake, you want to see the change. And maybe, you know, Heroes is quite a, Heroes of Might and Magic 5 is quite, maybe it does potentially be make an interesting study because it was when uh, sort of Heroes 1 to 3 um, sort of kind of built on each other, the classic 2D, then Heroes of Might and Magic 4 sort of universally hated because they really kind of fiddled with the system. What makes Heroes of Might and Magic 5 interesting, or I imagine could be interesting, is is that this was when the brand got rebooted. Um, and sort of they've, where previously the games weren't really that sort of aligned to each other, sort of Ubisoft said, okay, well, we're going to relaunch the brand, new storyline, and all the games from now on are going to kind of be connected. So that makes Heroes of Might and Magic 5 interesting from academic study because you can see, well, how have they changed the storyline, how have they changed the narrative, how have they changed the plot. But even from a gameplay perspective, they've sort of fiddled and muddled around with things. So, But we can't do it. We can't study this game now. So uh, the company still exists. Ubisoft is still around. And so if we manage to get out, so we get our hands a copy you know, for our students, for example. Um, okay, so this now raises the first issue is we need to make this game available to study. Uh, do I now have to go to my class of 100 students? Do I go now and buy 100 copies for them? Uh, normally, for other other forms of copyright, I would be able to rely on educational purposes. I can say, well, I'm, this is for critical study, and so I'm allowed to make copies of it, uh, which doesn't necessarily, depending on your jurisdiction, extend to video games. Um, Let's assume it does. It's Africa. It would, for example, because video games are considered uh, film, um, and there is an exception there for limited. Well, it's, it's, well, to see now, this 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 raises the issue because your educational defense does not allow a complete re a complete copy. It's selected portions. Um, presumably, you 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 have to copy the entire game <laughs> in yeah. order to, in order to run. Even if you just want to study sections of it, you would you'd need probably to, copy need to hack. You, in order to copy only hack only portions of it, you probably need to hack the game, which would already put you in a bit yeah. of a pickle. So this is our first problem. So now now you know um, this university lecturer is now expected to buy a hundred copies of the game, uh, which maybe they won't be able to get. Uh, so let's say they get, they do that. Now they need to play the game, uh, or they need to make it available. But like I said, the DRM server is down. So now what do they do? Um, so they, you know, they're a university. There's a lot of smart comp sci students around. So they managed to reverse engineer hack a DRM server. Ubisoft legitimately now can say, okay, well, in terms of our terms of service, cause you had to access this game in order to install it, you agreed to our terms and services. And our terms and service say you cannot reverse engineer stuff. You cannot do 
this. You cannot do that. You cannot connect it to other services. And so you're in breach of contract um, and they could potentially shut down your use of the game, which is a problem. Um, now, or or require you to pay for say now you 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 hadn't uh, bought the actual um, the actual game but copied it illegally they could force you to to pay them for those uh, yeah a reasonable royalty that yeah, they would be entitled to for the for the games that you that you're using now and if you've got a hundred students and you're buying a game that is very difficult to get a hold of they might be charging you a lot more than you actually wanted to ever part with in mm. terms of your scholarly budget oh yeah but also remember i mean you're not going to study a single game there'll be multiple mm. games that you want to study so this sort of compounds the issue so the terms of service can obviously raise an issue now uh, as a general rule of law it is rare that private contracts which is what are terms and conditions would amount to but it is rare that a private contract would be allowed to completely override legislation um, normally legislation, you know, law is the law and then you have sort of common law and then you, well, you have contractual law and then common law and you can sort of vary what has happened. In terms of the Copyright Act though, um, generally speaking, you can kind of vary anything that you want to. So even if we built into the copyright law and academic defense to allow people for, for study now to, to be able to reverse engineer games, to bypass these things, to make multiple copies in order to make it available to students, the terms and conditions as it currently stands, would trump all of that. I mean, so even if we changed the Copyright Act to allow this, the terms and conditions attached to that would still trump that. And so it doesn't actually solve our issue, is, is that we would need to not only have these rights embedded into the Copyright Act, but we would need to make provision that these, these uh, rights are unalterable, is that you cannot, through contract, you know, revoke these rights. Um... So terms and conditions potentially raise an issue, and, and so the law would need to bear that in mind. Um, so the, the, I suppose this sort of then leads us to the topics, okay, well, what about if it's we don't have the current gen hardware, right? So what if it's an older game and we need a SNES for it and a Super Nintendo Entertainment System, or we need a Sony, you know, Sega Mega Drive? Uh, and let's just assume that the Sega Mega Drive hasn't come out. Uh, am I going to be able to get my hands on a working cartridge and a working, sufficient working cartridge for all my students to play and a working console in order for them to play on. Uh, and that, you know, it's maybe possible with some of the more recent hardware, uh, but sort of the older things and things, sort of the original Ataris, or even the old cabinet boxes. I mean, what about arcade boxes? If we think about like the, um, what are they called? The very first arcade machine. Yeah, like the Neo Genesis yeah. and all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's not going to be easily, it's not going to be very easy for you to come by. Mm. Just from a space perspective, you're not going to have sort of... Miss Pac-Man machine. Yeah, you know, it's not, not going to happen, right? So, you know, then there becomes a need for emulation. Yeah. And now that raises issues. But it go, It also goes to the... It, it kind of ties in a little bit with the, uh, with the issue surrounding privacy... Uh, privacy? Piracy and uh, ease of access and distribution. So is pirating a work a reasonable thing to do or a defense? No, sorry, let me start this, let me start the sentence again by saying that is your inability to get access to a particular work a, an excuse for pirating that work? 
and it would go to the exact same uh, topic. Just because you're a teacher with this particular purpose, um, are you now able to reasonably pirate works? Are you now able to pirate works just because you can't get your hands on the original things? Is that something that our law regards as reasonable? I don't think it would currently. I mean, well, I, I would say no, it doesn't. I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think our current law does not would not allow. Well, remember, so we from a South African perspective, we don't have this concept of fair use. Uh, so that's our first problem. Mm. Um, even if it does extend, I don't know. Like I said, specific works have exemptions built into them. Yeah, in um, the Copyright Act, they do have certain fair use type yeah. elements, but it's it's very localized it's very particular it's not particularly broad at all yeah and, and so the issue is is that that may allow you to pirate the game but it doesn't necessarily allow you to emulate the game nor does it allow you to uh reverse engineer the console requirements to do it which mm. wouldn't be construed under copyright for example you know that might be covered by patent or yeah. trade secrets or yeah. in terms of if you look now recently i mean even the electronic communications and transactions act i mean section um, 86 you know there's specific things they're saying that it is a crime it is a criminal offense to use software to circumvent security measures to access data which you are unauthorized to do now you're not authorized to access this data and you're using emulators or whatever to access that it's a criminal offense you know mm. so this is sort of saying that second leg of it it's that second problem it's not just copyright it's because we require hardware to play games you know we can't just experience the game alone it requires hardware of some form there is now data security issues that we now need to circumvent and some some people might might argue that you don't necessarily need to do that but remember that we're we're talking from a from from a pure academic perspective. So, if, for example, you want your if you want your students to play Pokemon on the original uh, on an original little console, uh, then on a Game Boy, then you you want to get that Game Boy. Uh, you can emulate it and play it on the PC, but if your point is to see how the game interacts with your actual fingers pressing the buttons and see how that entire system worked together then you need to go through all of these hoops that we're that we're referring to so what's interesting is okay so i mean how, how do we how do we fix these issues um so the first is is that we would need to build in exemptions in terms of the copyright act to allow non-orphaned uh, i suppose we haven't even talked about orphan workshop that's before we go to the remedies then let's 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 talk about the last concept that is problematic is what do you do when the game that you want to create, you know, so let's assume you want to be lawful. Say, so, so you get the game, you go to the company who created the game and say, look, I want, I'm an academic, I'm doing a study of this game. Can you give me permission to do, you know, X, Y, and Z to this game in order to allow my students to study it? What do you do if the game company no longer exists? So Lionhead, for example, you want to do a study on black and white. Lionhead is closed. Who owns the copyrights? So this raises potential issues. Is that, okay, well, if the IP was valuable, maybe it got acquired by somebody else. And so now you have the issue of having to backtrack through and find permissions. You have to go and try and work out who bought these rights and contact them and ask them if you can do it. Now, it's quite possible that nobody acquired those rights. What do you do in that case? You know, so then it becomes an orphan work and there's no one that you can get permission from. Now, just depending on which jurisdiction you're in, it doesn't necessarily, just because, and this is where we sort of get the term abandonware. 
Um, so abandonware is either an orphaned work where you know the original copyright holder no longer exists and so you cannot get permission to them. But it also applies to software, and abandonware is normally applied to software, but it does people also use it for games. Um, but abandonware uh, is also potentially software where the copyright holder still exists, but it's no longer supported in any means or form. Yeah, and it's very it's very important to to make a distinction between those two because if the copyright holder still exists and it's not technically a legal orphan work, then just classifying it as abandonware because the the, the developer doesn't support it or anything anymore. Um, that's not going to stand you in any good stead in a legal perspective. It's There's still someone with rights. Whether or not they're choosing to exploit those rights at the moment, that's irrelevant. Um, you can't claim that just because he's not exploiting them that you now have the rights to exploit it. Yeah. Um, and so it's also interesting is, is that depending on which country you live in, they have different ways of dealing with orphan work. So if the proposed amendments, for example, so for example, if the proposed amendments to the Copyright Act come through, then the state, in, term, in terms of South African copyright law, the state will then become the owner of all orphan works. And more importantly, they get to collect royalties on those orphan works. So now you would have to go to the government and ask them for permission, and they could, and they probably would, charge a reasonable royalty for you uh, to use that game. Um, Which, then, considering it's a government, might be an unreasonable royalty in the public's eyes. Yes, indeed. Uh, but also, I mean, it comes down to the merits, though, is, is that... You don't, every other art form, it kind of goes back, it's a, a, I think that all of these issues are solved by copyright. If you can solve the copyright issue, then sort of intrinsically these other issues will also be solved. It just seems that there's an unnecessary burden placed on academics and historians and people who want to preserve the classics, who want to preserve old games to allow the current generation to enjoy them. Um, be it criminal sanction because they have to, uh, you know, hack into systems and reverse engineer things, um, or just because belligerent copyright holders. You know, somebody might say, okay, well, yeah, okay, but no, actually, we don't want you to do this. Um, you know, and that seems unfair, and it's unfair that any other art form doesn't have that restriction on it, and it limits the progression of academic study and uh, video game development as an academic discipline, it, you know, it, it, it puts up unnecessary hurdles. Um, and then also it's just that sort of, as, as, as an art form, how can we be expected to grow if we can't learn from our past masters, right? Um, so I think there's, you know, there's a definitive need. And to me, the answer lies in reforming the copyright law. And I see there's, there's, there's two things that need to happen. The first is, is that games themselves need to be seen as a copyrightable element. No country in the world says a game is its own thing, right? Um, and the WIPO, the World Intellectual Property Organization, they've sort of, there's been paper done on this, and they, the recommendation is that, yes, jurisdiction should be going and making game its own. So you'll be, you know, it's not software, it's not film, it's a game. So that's the first step. Um, and then the second step is then because then... You know, once you have it as its own classifiable element, you don't have to worry about introducing rights or defenses to use a game as a copyright software that would then impinge on movie or software, for example, which is the big worry is, is that if we start saying, OK, well, we can academically study if, if, if currently, for example, a game in your jurisdiction is seen as software, 
then any defenses that we try to build in not only apply to games, but applies to all forms of software. So now all of a sudden we're saying that, well, you can reverse engineer any sort of software that potentially becomes problematic. Mm. Um, so, you know, step one is, um, step one is copyright, uh, create a new classifiable element for games themselves in which we can then bundle sufficient defenses. Uh, then the second element is to have those defenses to allow it for archival or academic purposes to be preserved. And those need to be broad enough to circumvent the hardware requirements, but also sort of the software requirements, knowing that something could become worth of study even while it is commercially active. Now, what's interesting is, is that this has already started to happen. So in the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is the, the U.S.'s sort of most recent amendment to their copyright law it put in strict provisions to prevent reverse engineering and bypassing security requirements but in 2009 a new clause was added specifically allowing exemption for archival purposes and in europe similar sort of provisions have been put in place so we are already starting to see it happen it's just that i think we need more broader and from sovereign perspective this is something that we would like to see obviously is that we need to be built in the fact that it's still commercially viable means that there's this tension on the one hand between uh, it being exploited as a commercial work and being um, and being used for academic perspective, uh, for academic measures, um, and just generally for posterity. As we said at the beginning of the of, of this whole topic, it's uh, the fight between you wanting to exploit the commercial work um, and use it from an academic perspective at the same time, which is something that no other artwork actually has. Um, and it's particular to the games industry because of how quickly it's it's developing and how important these relatively young works are to study of the classics of games. Mm. I think the other thing that's important, uh, sort of another unique feature that would need to be dealt with, um, and there's an interesting case study of this in terms of World of Warcraft and their legacy servers, is that, especially with MMOs, but it's not just MMOs, it's just games get patched. Mm. Uh, and games get expansions. Now... It's not a problem for sort of standalone titles, but something like World of Warcraft. What if you wanted to study or sort of see the evolution or experience the first World of Warcraft before it had any of its expansion packs, before anything else? Let's go and have a look at that original design. It is impossible to do that currently. Right? You, if, you, if you were to say, it's not just so a buy a copy of World of Warcraft and we can experience it. No, because you've got all these other systems sort of the gameplay mechanics have changed, the rules of how you interact with other players, uh, a large portion of things that you could do in vanilla WoW, the, the original uh, version of it, uh, are, are completely non-existent now mm. in, in, the, in the most up-to-date one, which even if you were to buy the, if you weren't to buy the most up-to-date one, you would still be subjected to the rules of the most up-to-date one. Yeah even though you don't necessarily get to experience the content. Yes. Um, so what what this sort of has led to is World of Warcraft legacy servers being created, hmm. where people sort of are privately, in pir uh, privately hosting pirated services where they use the original 
code. I, well, they don't use the original code, but they allow you to experience vanilla WoW as it was back when it launched in like 2000 and something. Yeah, people are people are taking the um, the game files as whenever Blizzard releases patches, uh, there are places on on the internet where this information is stored and hosted for future generations and people who want to actually do this and it's not particularly legal to do but they they are sort of recreating the original uh, world of warcraft to to re-experience and one of the one of the um most prominent ones of these in in this week uh or last week was um the the server Nostalrius begins. They um, they started up in around about April last year, and Blizzard has recently, last week or the week before, sent them a cease and desist letter, um, and they're shutting down now. They're shutting down on the tenth of April, um, or shut down by the tenth of April, and they were quite popular. They were very popular. They had 800, I think it was 800,000 people who who had logged on uniquely and 150,000 active players. So it's it's obvious that people want to play this, but Blizzard Blizzard doesn't need to let them do this. and while for, for the purposes of our our topic at the moment in terms of academic study, legacy servers are something that we we kind of want to look at. But the reasons that people were playing on Nostalrius Begins is largely for nostalgia. It wasn't for academic study, but their actual own enjoyment, which is another a difficult thing to to balance here if your if your video game law if your video game lecturer decides to give you an old game for you to play to study where do you draw the line between you studying it and you playing it um so let's say we we, we've rambled a little bit (laughs) uh but i think that's sort of where i want to leave it today we've already run quite a lot over um so yeah it's a very it's a very interesting topic and it's very broad and because there have been very few people that have actually thought about this from a um from an academic and a legal perspective uh, in terms of how to how to actively shift the law and possibly even shift the mentality of the industry there's very little to work with so mm. we might touch on this again in the future yeah. um if you have any opinions if you have any thoughts of your own uh, let us know. It'll be interesting to chat. Mm. I think it's imperative, though, that if we want to see games both as an academic uh, discipline, game design as an academic discipline, to grow. And I think just for the sake of it as an entertainment experience, I think these are issues that are going to need to be addressed sooner rather than later. Um, and so hopefully, I mean, we're already starting to see sort of lawmakers at an international level sort of broach these things. So hopefully it won't be too long. Um, and hopefully it won't be too late, because uh, obviously the longer time goes on, the harder it will be to recover some of the the older games and to make you know be able to bring them to a form that is playable. Personally, I feel that there should be a buy-in from the actual um, from the actual developers who see that there is a public call for an archived version and to bring out a a sort of let's call it a commercially sanctioned archived 
Yeah. Look, I mean, look, this does then touch on sort of the last thing is is that what we've started to see is people remastering games, right? So Day of the Tentacles being remastered. Um, Final Fantasy, a lot of the Final Fantasies are being remastered and re-released onto mobile. Um, and that's okay, but it's not, it still doesn't, it kind of goes back to that root issue is, is that to truly interrogate what the original design was mm. and the original intentions is you do need to experience as far as possible the game as it was when it was released bugs uh, and all bugs and all and and sort of with the limitations of the hardware and because that in itself is interesting it's like how you know when you had eight bits to play with how did you do this sort of thing how you know how did they get around the constraints of the technology of the time and that is incredibly useful from a game design perspective so yes look remasters remakes are nice for the consumers and I think is a temporary stopgap measure, but it doesn't solve the academic problem. Or the, and even again said, I think I think there is there is worth, there is merit, and there is worth in being able to preserve and archive old games in their original format uh, and to allow them to be played in the way that they are meant to be played. That's all for today. Um, thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Um, we something that is interesting is so I, I might on a side uh, create just another separate much smaller podcast is, is that the call for comments on the Films and Publications Board Act is now upon us so we can see the final version and we can see what changes uh, so I will be submitting comment on behalf of some clients um, but what I might do uh, time permitting is I might just do a short recording on these are what the actual changes are in the Films and Publications Board Act and if you want to then submit comments, you then have some basis to, to, to work from. Uh, as always, if you have any comments, any feedback, hit us up on Twitter. Um, subscribe to the podcast, to the RSS feed. You can subscribe to us on, on iTunes uh, and on SoundCloud. Uh, and I'll say hopefully the sound quality is much better. And we look forward to chatting next week. Yeah, we look forward to listening to ourselves in crystal clear quality, hopefully. So good.